The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Hey y'all, this is Pastor Gordon Runyon from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tecumcare, New Mexico. Thank you for listening to this episode of Setting the Record Straight. And on behalf of Reconstructionist Radio, thank you for your continued support. We've had a kind of a roller coaster year in terms of dealing with the website that was attacked and hacked. And <laughs> man, it took a while to recover from that. But uh, we're looking forward to big things in 2020. We're very close to getting our our app finished, and this is going to be a top of the line, uh, a top of the line app. It's not a thrown together thing. A, a bunch of high quality work has been done on this app, and and when it rolls out, it's it's going to be top of the line. I think I already said top of the line, but it is, and uh, we're excited about that. And invite you. To help us with financing the very last bit of that, if you if you discern the leadership of the Holy Spirit moving you in that direction, uh, please go to the Reconstructionist Radio website and donate as generously as you can. And thank you in advance for that. Now, the substance of the episode that follows is a is an excerpt from a sermon that I preached recently. We've been doing a survey of the Revelation, which means, well, not even that. It's it's something different. A normal survey would be like a 30,000-foot view of a book or something. And what we've been doing is kind of going chapter by chapter, sometimes image by image, through the Revelation and showing how the four major interpretive schools of thought deal with those things. And while a lot of people are finding that interesting, it's a little bit frustrating as a teacher and preacher because <laughs> it's impossible to just get very detailed and stuff without without understanding you're going to take five years to go, <laughs> which I don't want to do. So, in just an effort to introduce people, we've recently had an influx of new people in the congregation who uh, are only just now being introduced to concepts like theonomy and postmillennialism, and uh, just trying to introduce them and bring them along. And so, that said, the excerpt that follows is from a sermon that came from Revelation chapter 13 and the specifically the image of the beast from the land who looked like a lamb and spoke like a lion, spoke like a dragon, rather. So uh, we're talking about ways that a lamb-like organization can begin to resemble a dragon. And then afterwards, it's my intention to sit down for a little while and answer some practical questions that have arisen, at least in my mind, and in our practice as a church, 
dealing with one of the areas that's addressed in the short little message that follows here. And so that's my plan. The excerpt first, take a break, and then come back and just kind of have a casual conversation about one of the topics, one of the ideas that's raised there and, and what it really means to deal with that. So enjoy. Hopefully you find something of benefit in it. God bless y'all. There are some, like I say, those some ethical judicial concerns here that I think transcend whatever your particular interpretation might be. And that is particularly, I think we'd all admit, regardless of our interpretation, that it is possible for a modern day government to begin to act like whoever is being talked about in the beast from the sea. If the preterists are right, and that's the first century Roman uh, Empire, it's totally okay to understand that 21st century America can sure do a lot of the same sorts of things and sure can begin to resemble whatever it was that the Romans were doing or the Holy Roman Empire or however that might be. I think you'd have a hard time in China right now telling the Christians there that they're not dealing with a beast. I think they certainly are. Now, whether that's the beast that John had in mind when he wrote that, uh, to me, that's a secondary issue. We understand it is possible for us to live in an area that is dominated by a Romans thir- or a Revelation 13 sort of beastly government. Just as true, it is possible for churches anywhere and anytime to begin to resemble more the beast from the land than to resemble the pure undefiled bride that Christ intended his church to be. We admit that as well, right? The church can become corrupted to the point, like Jesus said at one point, to the point that the synagogues become synagogues of Satan rather than pure churches. What I want to explore with you today is several ways that a church that should look like a lamb can wind up speaking like a dragon and serving the beast. The first one that I'll mention, these are in no particular order. The first way that a church can become a beastly church is that it fails to counter the dragon's claims to mediatorship. That's a, that's a tough word. Mediatorship. What's the Bible say? There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we mean that in an ultimate sense, that standing between sinful men like us and a holy and righteous God, there's only one intermediary. It's Jesus. And what qualifies him to be that is that he is at one time perfect human and perfect God in one being. How does that work? I don't know. But that's the miracle of the incarnation that we are specially supposed to have in mind in this season. Right? What's the Christmas miracle? Not that a baby was born in a manger, but that God stepped down into his creation as a part of his creation. That's the miracle. And for me, that's worthy of celebrating. In fact, I think we lose that and we lose it all. The incarnation is so huge. 
So as my brother reminded me the other day, and it was absolutely true, we have to be just as sold out to the idea that Jesus' humanity was 100% real humanity as we are insistent and sold out to the idea that his godhood was 100% godhood. You can't have uh, 90-10, right? It can't be that way. Now, that has consequences. If you believe that Jesus sits on top of the stack when it comes to humanity, that means nobody else can take that place. It's already occupied. And what happens in human history and the history of governments is that they try to cast Jesus out of that place or the church is not very good at preaching him into that place that the governments feel free to take that place. And we see this beginning in the book of Genesis as wicked kings start deifying themselves and demanding worship from everybody. Pharaoh was supposedly a god walking on earth. And you just see this over and over again until you get to the Roman Empire. Caesar itself is a, is a title of deity. And every one of the Caesars considered themselves to be divine beings who were worthy of worship. Well, the church doesn't help matters when it refuses to speak out publicly against that deification of the beastly state. So why am I the only pastor in town who's speaking out publicly against the deification of the state? Shouldn't be that way. And it's not because I'm good or special. I'm wondering. I wish somebody else would do it. I wish I didn't have to do it. Who else is doing it? Why is it so hard to find a church that's willing to keep Jesus in that spot, even if it means having to knock everybody else down? If the pulpits aren't doing that, the people aren't going to know it should be done. And so we find ourselves in a place where the government sees itself as the voice both of the people, but also the voice of God. The government sees itself as the closest thing that we can get to God. How do we know that's true? Oh, not in America. Yeah, in America. Every problem that comes around, what's the first thing that should? Oh, somebody should make a law. You know, Washington needs to do something. Santa Fe needs to do something. No. We need to appeal to God. We need to appeal to heaven. And the church becomes a dragon in its speech when it fails to call out the false mediation of the government, whatever government that is. We have to insist there's only one name on the top of that stack. Amen? Amen. Good preaching, preacher. Amen. <laughs> Second thing I want to point out is that the church comes to the aid of the state when we come out in favor of coercive leadership characterized by the exercise of force. You like how I keep my points real short and simple? The church speaks like a dragon when she, she herself operates with and endorses the coercive use of force as a principle of leadership. I'm going to have to put that in plainer language for you. The beastly state doesn't exist without the power to say to everybody, do what I say or else. 
right? If the, if the government didn't have that power, it wouldn't exist as the beast that it exists as. It's that power to force people to do your will when they don't want to do it. That's what creates a beastly state. And the church should be speaking out against that. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, y'all are refugees from other churches, so I'm going to say something. I'm preaching to the choir here when I say this. Most churches not only do not preach against that principle, but they've taken that principle and incorporated it into the way they do church. You're going to come here, you're going to do what we tell you. Or else you can just find somewhere else. Oh. Nobody here has dealt with that? Yeah. The church needs to speak out against this sort of thing. And where do we get this from? Where do we get, where do we get the stuff to tell the government you shouldn't be operating that way? We get it from Jesus in the upper room. When he, the one who had the only right to say to people, do this or else, when he is the one who put aside his clothes, took upon himself the garment of a servant or a slave, and bent down and washed the feet of all the people who should have been willing to just call him master and call it good. And he didn't do that to give us a new sacrament to perform in the church. Brother, you going to the foot washing tonight? Listen, when we have foot washing as part of what the church does in its ceremonies, all we prove is we don't know what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was not talking about your feet. Now, I want you to come to church with non-smelly feet and all that. But Jesus wasn't talking about your feet. He's talking about in the new economy that Jesus is creating and has created. In Christ, all things are new. The old has passed away. There's a new creation. There's a new humanity that comes from following and serving Jesus. And in that new community, that new creation, the new way the world works... Leaders lead by serving. It's got to be that way first in our churches. But when it starts working in our churches and people who are not part of our churches begin to see, oh, you're, you're doing something weird over there. You've got something strange going on. You don't have anybody in that church that's pounding on people and saying, do this or else. How can you have an organization like that? How can it possibly survive without somebody who's got the power to make you do what I darn well tell you to do? How, right, only God. How can, a, how can an organization survive without picking out somebody and saying, you've got this power? That should be us. Jesus said, the greatest among you shall become the servant, the least of all. Jesus took a child in his hands. He, should, he who would be great among you, he must become like this one. And what have, we, what have we done with that? You know what we've done in our churches? We've said, when Jesus took the child and said, unless you become like this child, you shall in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. We've taken that to mean childlike, simple faith. You've heard that, right? You have to have faith like a child. Okay. But what if you meant 
you've got to be willing to come to the place where your authority over other people is exactly the same as the authority that this child has to make anybody do anything. What if the only authority that exists within the church as far as one human dealing with another human, what if the only authority we're supposed to have is the authority of a child or the authority of a slave? If the slave wants to get his masters to do something, what's he going to have to do? He's just going to have to find a way to persuade them. He's going to have to talk them into it, right? He's got no authority. And it will help if he has demonstrated throughout his life that he's really good at his job. He does what he's supposed to do. That will kind of lend his voice some authority. Our churches have to be run this way. And they're not. We've taken the dragon's form of authority, do this or else, and we've made it the way we structure everything we do as a church. You mean, Pastor, you don't have the authority to come to me and tell me to leave? No, I, I don't believe I have that authority. I can preach in such ways that you make yourself think, I don't want to go there anymore. <laughs> but I, <laughs> amen, Pastor. <laughs> But I, I have no authority to go to anybody and say, hey, my way or the highway. That's a beastly way of doing business. Third thing, the lamb-like organization speaks like a dragon when she only addresses her speech in one way. What I mean by this in the text, we see here the the second beast has as its object to make sure everybody is worshiping the first beast and the dragon. We saw that, right? So forcing everybody to worship that first beast. And when the prophet only ever speaks to the people about what their duty is before God and before that beast, that has the effect of allowing the beast to get away with whatever it wants to do. Because the, the prophet says to people, oh, look, Romans 13 says, if you're disobeying the government, you're disobeying God. <laughs> Which it doesn't say. But that's all you hear. When does the church ever direct its voice away from the people temporarily to the beast? And say, you're not allowed to act that way. You're supposed to be obeying God. And you'll be in trouble for your disobedience to his commandments. See, the church, the corporate church, the business church is very willing to preach to the people to keep them in line. But that, that church never turns its voice to the beast and speaks like a genuine prophet, speaks like a prophet of old and says to them, thus saith the Lord, you cannot continue in this path. When's the last time the church spoke like that? And the fact that it will not speak that way, eventually, the people who are in office and in power with the other beast, eventually, they start to think, we can do whatever we want. The church may make some grumblings and stuff, but they don't care. We can do whatever we want. The fourth way that the lamb preaches like a dragon is that she preaches no standard for civil morality. Many, many churches have the idea that the government is allowed to just kind of try to figure it out as it goes. 
do the best it can. You know, uh, develop its own theories of natural law and figure out what good and evil is just kind of as they will. In fact, you will have Christian churches become nervous when people like me suggest we should be teaching the government what righteousness looks like. Oh, separation of church and state. Separation of church and state does not mean separation of God and state. The state is still going to have to deal with God. We help the state by telling them, look, these are clearly the things that God requires. And your variance with these things is putting you in a very precarious situation. (laughs) The, The church preaches no standard for civil morality. The church refuses to address the government and say, no, you can't just tolerate anything. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there really are some things that are wicked. There really are some things that are righteous. There really are such things as abominations. And there really are things that are sweet and honorable and should be rewarded. And that's your job, government, to enforce God's definition of what those things are. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, one of the things that it does say is that the the deacon of God, which is the civil government in that passage, the deacon of God is there to punish the wicked on behalf of God. But the simple question then is, whose definition of wickedness, whose definition of evil does the government get to prosecute? And if the church is not preaching and teaching its own people what God's standards of righteousness are, how in the world is the outside government supposed to have any clue? You can't even go to a Christian church and find the government and find the preacher telling you specifically, these are the principles of righteousness which have not changed, which will not change, which are based on the unchanging character of the God who changes not. You can't find that in Christian churches. What you'll find in Christian churches these days is more people saying, well, brother, preaching the law, that's dangerous. You're going to bring people in bondage. No, I'm not. I'm going to show them the way of walking in liberty by teaching them to obey the moral principles of God, which change not. With God, there is neither shadow nor hint of turning. And when the church fails to preach like she should, whether she wants to or not, she winds up enabling all the governments around her to become more and more beastly over time. And it leaves us all sitting here on a Sunday thinking, my word, how did it come to this? Well, it wasn't an accident. Righteousness doesn't happen by accident. But when you leave people to themselves, wickedness kind of happens all the time. If you're not preaching righteousness, you're inviting wickedness. And now even in Christian churches, not only will they not campaign against abortion, you've got preachers who won't preach about it in their churches because they're afraid of offending people who may have had one in their congregation. That's no joke. That actually happens. I can't preach that. I can't preach that abortion is murder because I know I've got some women out here 
How are you helping those women by refusing to preach? Yeah, they, they may not like being informed that what they have done is murdered their offspring. But if you don't get past that, you're never going to get to forgiveness in Christ. We're not saying abortion is an unforgivable sin. We're saying you've got to admit your sin and turn from it in order to find forgiveness. You're not doing anybody any favors by just letting them go on in their sin. And that's kind of the definition of Christian preaching these days. Boy, pastor, you don't like Christian preaching these days. Well, (laughs) pseudo-Christian preaching. And I'm not, don't hear me saying up here, I'm preaching better than every other preacher. I'm not. There is a remnant still in our day of preachers who are bolder than I am. And they are willing. And I want to be one of them. I want us all to be in their company. We are the ones who are willing to say what needs to be said, regardless of what the outcome is going to look like. We say what God says to say, and we kind of just let the chips fall at that point, knowing that God is in control. That story that Bobby just told about how God arranged the situation in her house to kind of save her life and save that building and all of that. Guess what? That God's in charge of everything. And if we don't know that and trust it, what are we going to do? Walk around scared, maybe not say the things that we know we're supposed to say, and maybe try to keep people happy in the congregation so they'll keep coming and keep giving money. Right? Am I saying anything that isn't real? That's right. That's right. You're either feeding sheep food or you're feeding goat food. That's just honest. When I was very first in the job of trying to be a shepherd in this place, there were people, I know this will shock you, but when I said some of the things that I just said back then, there were people that got really mad and they, they left. And I felt bad about that. And I thought, man, should I go chasing after them? What should I do? I'm the pastor. I should go find them. And it just really helped me to come to the realization that you don't help a wolf out by telling him, won't you come back and put your sheep clothes back on? And it doesn't help the sheep either to welcome back the wolf. Preacher, preach sheep food and the goats will go looking for something else. And when they do, that's not a tragedy. That's the increasing purity of God's church. It's not something to be afraid of. What's that? Leaves more room for the sheep. (laughs) Right, leaves room for the sheep. All right, God bless you all. Thank you for your patience with me. Let's pray. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, But if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com 
to volunteer as a narrator, or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom. And we're back from our break and changing things up a little bit. I'm sitting here with my illustrious wife, Joyce, my best friend and best counselor. Oh, it must be Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk a little bit in just about one aspect of the message that was just on here. One of the one of the points that I was making is that a church that should look like a lamb can become like a dragon by adopting the dragon's uh, theories of power and authority mm -hmm. within the church. Well, that's pretty standard, really. Oh, it's absolutely the status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just that my sense is as soon as somebody begins to speak like that because it is so standard and because it is so frankly universal the question is always well what's the alternative and yeah so that's what I would kind of like to talk about today and I thought I'd <clears throat> begin by just pointing out I think we're at an interesting point in our little congregation yet at Emmanuel because we've recently, over the past several months, we've had an influx of new people mm -hmm. and they haven't all come from the same place, but uh, ethically and judicially, they yeah. kind of have come mm. all from the same they place. They fled for the same reasons. <laughs> That's right. In fled fact, being the key word, yeah. Yeah, they have fled, fled for refuge. In fact, we've talked recently about changing the name of the church, and somebody suggested that we just call it the refuge, just as a description <laughs> of yeah what a lot. Of, there was, that was one of the new people that suggested that's what it, we should call it because that's what it's been yeah for her. And sociologists and stuff who study church life have come up with two categories it's fashionable for them to talk about when they talk about church attendance and stuff. Mm -hmm. And one is the nuns, and these are people who are surveyed who say they have no particular religious affiliation, no denominational. <clears throat> so they're called the nuns, but there's another group called the duns, <laughs> where they just say, I'm out of here, I'm done. Yeah. I don't need this anymore. <laughs> and these are ones who, at least when they're surveyed, would say that they used to have those sorts of church affiliations, but now they don't. Now they're just, they're burned out. They're, they're finished. They're done. Yeah. And uh, I feel like the duns represent over half our congregation right now people who have fled you know yeah. and we do have folks who in their in their own confession about what has happened to them they talk about being kicked out of churches for holding to minority opinions and 
Yeah. And being, well, we've got somebody there that that the church actually got a restraining order against him and to yeah. keep him out. And, <clears throat> yep. And you and I aren't strangers to uh, the sort of abuse that make people leave churches. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it, not physical, but, you know, when you get accused of being motivated by demonic spirits and stuff like that, uh, I think that qualifies when it's the pastor accusing you of those things yeah. and spreading well, not, it around. Not to you, actually, <laughs> but to everybody else. Right, to his in-group and all that. Yeah. So anyway, my point is that for a long time we existed as a very tiny congregation of people who were pretty much on the same page. Mm -hmm. uh, the ones who remained with us were people who had heard all of my stuff and had come to uh, at least tolerate it. If, uh, you know. <laughs> but uh, a lot of them were in agreement. Mm -hmm. We came to a run-of-the-mill Southern Baptist kind of country church didn't uh congregation and and up until a few months ago when this influx happened we were then existing as a small congregation of christian reconstructionists and abolitionists and yeah and people who were just wondering what do we need to do to affect our community and, and actually trying to do those things and now we've got this influx that on a good sunday it's kind of more than doubled the number of people who were there. Yeah. And these folks coming in have no clue. I mean, they've heard some of my anti-government <laughs> stuff. You know, they've read yeah. the articles that I have in the newspaper. And and because they see me being critical of government and, and bringing the word of God to bear against tyrants of all stripes, mm -hmm. well, well, let's go give that guy's church a try. But they come here as pretty run-of-the-mill evangelicals otherwise. And so when I'm breaking out post-millennialism and theonomy and yeah. uh, stuff like that, these are terms they haven't even heard of, much less <clears throat> considered dealt with. <laughs> yeah. But I just wanted to point out that also in the last several years, my theory of how to do ministry has greatly changed in in terms of believing that as an ordained elder the only authority i have is in preaching and the authority that's garnered by doing my best to live consistently where people can see that and stuff so it's my preaching and my lifestyle and and i think if if that isn't enough for me to have authority then i i don't have any authority and i've that's a message that I've really been hitting kind of hard with the with the new people that are in there. Yeah. I talk about it a lot. It's and the reason that I talk about it a lot is because it is kind of revolutionary. And just in the last in the last couple of months we've you and I have heard comments from the new congregation, the new folks that are in. Mm -hmm. And some of them have been pretty amazing, really, just hearing people who haven't felt welcome in a church for a long time say things like, I don't know what y'all are doing here, but I really like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, and just the other day, one of the one of the new ones 
just kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, I just can't stress to you what a cup of cold water it's been for us in the desert to come to a place that doesn't demand that we necessarily agree with every word that comes out of your mouth or something like that or or that there are no extra biblical requirements about what you must do in order to be welcomed or that you are set on the pedestal and we must uh, revere everything yeah (laughs) right pay attention to what the man of god is saying (laughs) yeah don't touch God's anointed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so we don't do any of that. And in fact, when I am given space to preach, I'm very often preaching against the notion that I have some kind of institutional authority or power to to yeah. dominate their conscience or to tell them this is what you or... must do. And, yeah. I, and I stress that uh, the elders don't have any authority to excommunicate people. The only, the place where Jesus placed that authority is in the congregation itself. Yeah. Matthew chapter 18 is the famous church discipline instructions that Jesus gave. And it begins on the very lowest level, just person to person. And of course, then you go through the step of if the guy still doesn't repent after you've contacted him, you bring somebody else. And yeah. And if he's obstinate in his ways, then you bring it to the church. And if he still doesn't repent, then you treat him as an outsider. And nowhere in that process is there any mention of elders or deacons, pastors. They're just not there. And I have become convinced that the only tool a pastor has to deal with issues and problems is the Word of God and his lifestyle. Well, and if the pastor is really presenting God's word, the Holy Spirit's going to convict people of where their errors are. And it's not you targeting somebody or saying, (laughs) all right, so I see this problem out here, so I'm going to tailor my message through this scripture, and then I'm going to go off and say what I want to say and and kind of massage it into, this is what this is saying. Right. So... Well, and so the challenge is going to be, especially after I preach really hard about we have to, we have to do opposite of what the world is doing when it comes to authority and power. Mm-hmm. The challenge is going to be, well, how can that possibly work? How can you have leadership without, without a great man in a position of authority mm-hmm. who's better than everybody else and we're going to give <laughs> him the authority? And, mm-hmm. and if that doesn't work, if he proves not to be a great leader, then we just need to find that great leader that can deal with being in that position. And, and that's how the world does everything. And, of course, mm-hmm. Jesus uh, said, The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. And took upon himself the garb of a slave to wash the disciples' feet. And and that was all in dealing with the topic of authority and how it's supposed to work post-resurrection. Yeah. And I'm convinced it's supposed to work that way, not just in the church, but everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're reversing the curse. Like it says in Joy to the World, far as the curse is found, we're, we're supposed to be bringing redemption and the gospel. And so... So the challenge then is, okay, those those are fine words, but how do you do church discipline if you don't have if you don't have a pastor with authority? And 
I, I struggle not to become a smart aleck when I hear that question yeah. because the answer seems so obvious when you look at Matthew chapter 18. So you're telling me you think that the only people who can do church discipline are the ones who have been ordained, who have some kind of institutional authority? No one sitting out in the congregation is capable of going to their friend and neighbor and and, saying, hey. and trying to rebuke them if they need to be rebuked or yeah. gently call them. That's always the better thing, I think. <laughs> gently call them back if, or that's my go-to. Yeah. So only an ordained person can do that? And if the answer is no, then the issue isn't how are we going to do church discipline. The issue, the issue is empowering people in the congregation to just do their own job, you know? Yeah. Well, and whenever you bring somebody outside of that situation into it, everybody becomes defensive. <laughs> yeah. So you're not going to get anything done. Right. And most of the times in those situations where someone's feelings are hurt or they feel offended, the other person never even intended that. Uh, right. Yeah. And so true. if you go and you say, you know, can I just talk to you about this a moment? <laughs> and just being able to do that without right. uh, accusing somebody or them feeling threatened or, you right. know, just as like you like you should be able to do. Right. Right. And so I don't even... I don't even understand how that's a real question. Who are you going to, how are you going to do church discipline? Well, church discipline is supposed to be done by individual believers dealing with other individual believers. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to be this formal process. Yeah, it's not a trial by jury or a (laughs) court of appeals. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, another question is like it. You, pastor, if you don't have this kind of authority and you're not making people, like, formally covenant to be your congregation, how are you going to know who you're supposed to pastor? How are you going to know who you're supposed to disciple or train? And? Uh, Well, (laughs) I think the answer just presents itself right away. And the answer is the people who keep showing up are the ones who apparently want to learn from me and yeah. hear some instruction or, yeah. or they see some kind of value. I, I still find that amazing, but they, they obviously some, see some kind of value showing up on a Sunday to, to hear the word. And as long as they're showing up and as long as they're allowing me to speak to them, mm-hmm. then if I discern that here's a place I may need to say something directly to them, yeah, then I'm going to do that. And that's what we all should be doing, <laughs> right. not just pastors. Right. Well, and then it makes me ask then, if you really think that way, then shouldn't you have to believe that the only discipleship that can take place is one where you have an ordained person discipling a layman of some kind? If that's not a real divide, I mean, if that's not a real requirement, and lay people can can successfully disciple each other, mm-hmm. then I don't know where that question really grabs hold of anything, you know? Yeah. But here's the thing. For me, I consider this to be a challenge. Over half the congregation is probably on a different page with me when it comes to... When it comes to a lot of things that I think are important, like 
the law of God and and the expectation of victory for the gospel and yeah. abolition. Uh, a lot of the congregation probably has never heard those things or or they're hearing them for the first time from me. Mm-hmm. And and the challenge is going to be okay, pastor, you're talking about leading without having institutional authority. Well, here's the challenge. Here's the here's the place where we get to field test that and the rubber meets the road now. Yeah. Pastor, what are you going to do when over half the congregation is not on the same page as you are and and you've got to try to lead? What are you going to do? And I'll tell you what, several years ago, that situation would have scared me to death. Yeah. And well, I was in it several years ago. You know, when we first got to the church, yeah. over half the congregation not only disagreed with me, but they hated me. And and mm-hmm. and it yeah. was it was very much a source of anxiety for me all the time. Yeah. But dealing with this now, kind of in a, not the same. I mean, there's no antagonism coming from the mm-hmm. present congregation. Yeah. But there's mm-hmm. no anxiety on my part. Because my job is extremely simple. I just I just preach to the ones who will listen to me. I just teach the ones who are willing to hear it and learn from it. Yeah. And I'm willing to let the chips fall, you know. Well, ultimately, you can't change anybody. No, that's true. Nobody can change anybody else. And that's the whole reason God has to be in that equation. You right. know, he's the only one that can do any real change in any of our lives. Right. Man, it was so terrifying for me before I kind of had this revolution in my thinking brought on by fellow podcasters at Reconstructionist Radio, by the way. <laughs> but before I had that that upheaval in my thinking, uh, I was terrified by passages that said things like the the shepherds will give an account for the souls of the ones that are in their charge. I'm terrified to hear something like that, you yeah. know, because I know something about the people who are in my charge. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and now coming to realize that just means that I'm going to give an account for how I taught and how I yeah. preached and how I lived among them. Did I live consistently and treat them consistently with my message? And I just, I just really feel like as we see church after church fall uh, in the area of like sexual sin within mm-hmm. the church and sexual abuse by pastors and youth ministers. As that train just keeps gathering steam and we keep see, we keep seeing churches fall to that and we keep seeing churches bend over backwards to protect the oppressors and not the victims. I think that we have got to be the ones who have a different way of doing business. And I said in that sermon that we have to be the test lab. We have to be the place where these theories are being proven. And we have to make this work as a congregation or as, you know, as churches, we have to make it work where pastors are not domineering. They're not, they're not lording it over anybody. The elders have no authority over people's consciences or or anything like that that we really do take seriously the idea of 
the right and duty of private judgment among the congregation. And we're okay with saying, you're not my servant, you're God's servant, and he'll deal with you. And, and yeah. I, don't have to, I don't have to be on your case all the time. <laughs> and to me, that's so freeing. And it's so, I'm, I feel so much more secure about, well, this is my job. God knows me, and He hasn't given me this gigantic task. Yeah, He knows I'm not Hercules; that I'm this weak man that can barely string two sentences together when I'm preaching. So my job is not difficult, or it's not complex anyway. It's it's just I preach consistently from the Word, and I do my best to live consistently with what I preach and treat people in accordance with that. And if I do that, that is me uh, acting like I know I'll give an account for their souls. Yeah. You know, and I don't understand how pastors live otherwise. I mean, I think we see how they do it. Yeah. They become micromanagers and little ecclesiastical tyrants where everybody has to do what they say because they really think they're going might go to hell if they don't get this thing straightened out yeah and i'm i'm so glad that that's not what the lord really requires of his people it is a good thing yeah <laughs> it really is because honestly nobody wants that type of person on their case. In their life. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So, uh, yeah, we have freedom in Christ that you, you don't have anywhere else. We have peace that you don't have anywhere else because of that freedom. And it can be scary because, well, who's going who's gonna to keep me in line? Well, you know, we're, we're big people. <laughs> we have the Holy Spirit. We have God's Word. Those things are supposed to be written in our hearts. And we're supposed to know... Well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and you know what? You do. You know that. And right. so, yeah. you know, be honest with yourself, and that will help a lot. <laughs> right. Free people up and allow them to be mature believers. Not just telling them that's their job, but, but releasing them to it. And mm -hmm. just saying, this is on you. You know, this is between you and God. And I've done my part. And I'll continue to do it as much as you'll allow me to do it. Yeah. I'll help you however I can, but I'm not... Well, and that's what makes it genuine. I know one of our girls was talking about um, she was being discipled by this other person. And it was, uh, you know, the, and probably more than one of our daughters has done that through the Christian organization on campus. And it was all, this person is going to be your your person and you meet with them, and you talk to them about things, and they're going to disciple you. Right. If they knew each other before that, if they had anything that, you know, right. that didn't matter. They were assigned to yeah. a discipler. And, <laughs> and that's really not the way those things work out in reality. In reality, you have people that are in your life that will provide you opportunities to speak to them. And will share things with you that are serious to them. And those are people that you're supposed to be impacting. Not, oh, I've got to go now and meet somebody at three for half an it's hour. discipleship time. And I'm going yeah. to help them become better people in Christ. <laughs> you know, that half an hour, once a week, ain't going to do it. <laughs> no, that's right. And so 
you know, be genuine with the people that you're, that are in your life, that you're involved with. And God can work some amazing things out through those times. Sure. I think that's obviously been true just for you and I. I mean, we've, one of the blessings of a Christian marriage is that we have somebody there that's always willing to disciple us, you know, <laughs> and kind of call us back into line. Yeah. And, and it's a necessary thing. You know, it really is because it's easy to um, become somebody who's focused on yourself sure. instead of yeah. on what you should be focused on, which usually is not yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is right. All right. Can you think of anything else? I just, I want to stress, I think that, I think that the population of nuns and duns out in the world mm -hmm. is so gigantic. Yeah. And I just met a woman on my route the other day who, uh, she said she was a believer and I asked her if she had a place where she attended church said no no I don't go to church the last the last few times I've been to church they've just really uh, not treated me well and yeah and maybe that's on her maybe she's making an excuse I I know it's people make excuses to, to all the time that with as yeah. many times as I mean yeah you and I have <laughs> enough experience but then when I said to her I said you know at our congregation, I think you'd find more than half of the people there are just like you, that they've been abused and mistreated mm -hmm. by church authorities, and mm -hmm. we're just not having it, you know, that's not the way we're doing things, and and I was sad, her reaction was, nope, not even gonna, not even gonna go there. And you know, whoever it was that had a hand in scarring that woman, yeah. Whoever mm -hmm. scarred that woman so that she thinks she can't actually fellowship with a church, uh, they're going to be dealing with the Lord over those sorts of things. Well, um, yeah. I'm sure it's not just that one person. Unfortunately, that seems to be... Uh, Standard operating. Yeah. You know, people yeah. that abuse one person will do that to anybody that they can. Yeah, that's right. It's like you get power-hungry people that power-hungry people that like the thought of kind of intimidating people and and they kind of gravitate toward jobs like uh, police. You, you know, you're not finding a lot of real gentle guys joining yeah. the police. And, and I think you find them going into ministry as well. And, I mean, it's it's sad. It's horrific but well you find people in ministry that aren't actually saved <laughs> which what you know yeah, right. shouldn't that be a requirement <laughs> absolutely absolutely all right well we're in danger of just rambling here i just wanted to address some of these things uh, when i talk about we need to refuse to adopt the dragon's method of controlling people mm -hmm. I believe Jesus really did give us a clear alternative to that. And it's radical, and it's it's world-changing, and it brings upheaval. Mm -hmm. But in my experience of it so far these last several years, trying to implement it as a pastor, and the water is warm. It's a, it's a nice place to jump in. You know, you don't have yeah. to just put a toe in there. You can... 
you can just trust the water is good and it's a nice place to be and and well the, the truth of it is you're not really controlling those people uh, right you're just uh you're forcing them to do your will to a certain extent so they're not really controlled in their mind or yeah yeah sure thing Alrighty. Well, we're going to go ahead and say good night on the old podcast. (laughs) Thank you all for joining us. God bless you. Go out and dominionize. Oh, wrong wrong podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Dominionize anyway. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.